We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, fit, my physical as well as my mental fitness. Coffee time. And it is uh, that time again, episode number seven, chapter seven of our special series on the Alaska Grand Jury and uh, showcasing a book written by David Ignell. Uh, Now, this is a this is a uh, book that is available in PDF form on David's site. David, welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks, Jason. And uh, yeah, long time no talk. I guess uh, an hour here, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we are rec- yeah. recording multiple sessions per day. Yes, yes, and uh, yeah, my website is poweredbyjustice.com. dot uh, com, and uh, as Jason said, it's it's uh, in PDF format on my site, and uh, it's. Um, for free to download, uh, read, uh, do you know? Do with it what you uh, what you want to do. And I know some uh, some people have been printing it out. Um, I actually heard over uh, Thanksgiving one of the people that the uh, the dinner party here is a uh, is a publisher, and she was telling me about uh, Amazon has a uh, has a site or has a service where it's pretty easy to uh, uh, get books published. And so I, I may have to look into that. Uh, there was a lady in, in Kenai who was telling me that she took, uh, took the PDF down to one of your local, uh, print shops there. And I think it was, uh, to get two uh, to get two volumes or, or two printouts, it was like 50 some dollars. So I'm going to, I'm going to look at this, uh, uh, Amazon site and see if, you know, we can reduce the, the cost. Uh, well, still, that's want to print. that's not too bad. You know, twenty five bucks a copy. I, I guess you don't get the hard cover, and uh, uh, or 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 binding, I suppose. But uh, you get it right away, and you don't have to uh, pay for shipping, which Amazon usually does for free anyway. But you know, yeah, no, I I think you could probably get that price down. You know, eight or ten bucks. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, it's something I'll I'll look into. But um, anyway, yeah, no, it's um, uh, I did want to uh, tell listeners that you know during our hour break uh, just a, just a few minutes ago, in fact, I got a call from uh, Thomas Jack uh, Jr., the uh, uh, the guy that uh, you know motivates my work. Um, you know, he he was calling from Goose Creek and uh, the prison up there, and. Uh, we had just spoken a couple days ago and, and I, uh, I says, well, you know, is any, I've, I've got to get on the phone here with Jason in a few minutes is, you know, anything pressing. And he says, no, he goes, I was just calling to see if you'd heard if the, uh, the Juno grand jury had, had, uh, you know, reconvened. Uh, so, you know, he's, uh, you know, here, here's someone who has lost his freedom, uh, the last 12 years, um, by, uh, by, uh, undeserved uh, actions of, of state officials. And so, 
you know, he's he's got a vested interest in in grand jury investigations uh, that need to be done in this state, and in seeing the uh, the spotlight of truth uh, shown on on everything that that happened in his and other cases that that I've requested be investigated. So. Um, I asked Thomas, I go, well, look, I'm going to be going on uh, <clears throat> Jason's show again in a few minutes. Is there anything you want to say to uh, listeners in Alaska? And he thought about it for a little bit, and he just said uh, uh, he, he's, he said that he wishes the good Lord will give listeners who hear this a receptive heart. And uh, he said this is his prayer um, every day. And uh, Thomas is a... Uh, uh, you know, highly uh, religious person, and uh, uh, it's been his uh, belief in God uh, that has gotten him through these last 12 years. So I just wanted to share that uh, with your listeners before we uh, get on to Chapter 7. Now, now something that um, I wanted to touch on briefly, because we had a we had a meeting this uh, Saturday here at the Amalcan Coffee Social Club in Soldana, and uh, there were there were some folks here, justice-minded folks, that were talking about this issue of wrongful incarceration, and uh, and there was a woman who attended who actually had her own story um, of basically overreaching law enforcement and um, uh, an unreceptive uh, prosecutor. And uh, in hearing her, her part of the story and, and um, you know, the, the witnesses that, that saw what went down. But, but the, the crux of the matter was, was, I guess, where we arrived at in the conversation was that until you've been touched by dysfunction, sometimes it's easy to be so removed from, uh, you know, the world, uh, as it, as it is, but we're kind of sheltered, you know, as it were in our families and our communities. And, uh, you know, most folks are not, um, having brushes with law enforcement or, uh, the prosecutor's office or the courts. But when it happens, it's a profound experience. And, um, you know, I pray and hope that those who are listening don't have to have that experience. But we saw, you know, over the past couple of years, this rise in um, protest, public protest across the nation, primarily looking at uh, allegations of police brutality and um, a broken prosecutorial system across our nation and in our cities and and um and that took form in violent protests and property destruction and all kinds of things and you know i'm not a supporter of blm or antifa but uh there is a sentiment in our society that things are broken badly and i believe that there are people who will harness that sentiment for their own selfish purposes, just like some government officials will harness the power that they receive and the access they get when they become a public official for their own selfish, uh, you know, designs. And we have to remember that first and foremost, we are all Americans and we're neighbors. And there are probably more things that unify us than divide us. But 
the folks in big corporate America and big media, they want to keep us divided because that equals dollars. Drama equals dollars. It sells news. It sells advertising. And the purpose of this podcast is not to deepen the divide, but to actually bring us together as a concerned community, saying whether you're on the right or left, it doesn't really matter. The justice uh, system should be equal, and we should receive equal protection under the law. And we should also be presumed innocent until found guilty. And there are no shortcuts to determining a person's guilt There's something called due process or habeas corpus. And under due process, we're all entitled to hear the allegations levied against us and review the information used to prove our or uh, prove the state's position of guilt against us and examine it and defend ourselves and the ability to call witnesses and the ability to have full disclosure, full discovery from the prosecuting side. And when prosecutors hide information that might otherwise show that we are not guilty of the things we're being accused of, they actively become part of the criminal issue at hand. Whether there was a crime committed or not, they actually commit a crime when they withhold that exculpatory evidence. And the system seems to be operating in various circles of fraternity that protect themselves from discovery, protect themselves when finally discovered, you know, it's discovered that they've done something wrong. And as we discussed in the last episode in our, in our conclusion, You know, uh, when the state starts offering people deals to allow them to go back to their lives as normal, if they'll just uh, file a uh, an agreement that says I won't sue you, then we have to we have to ask, you know, what's the bigger picture here? And I don't want to be quick to condemn the people and their sentiment, the folks that rioted with Antifa and BLM. I don't agree with their methods. But their sentiment is resonant. It's resonating, and it cuts across cultural divides, and it cuts across party divisions, and the tribalism that corporate America and those in power would like to uh, continue to promote. Because through chaos, they can exercise control. And it's we, the people, who should have the control over the government and not them. So... Uh, very excited to hear Chapter 7. It's great to hear that uh, Mr. Jack has a positive, uh, is in a positive frame of mind and is hopeful that uh, our listeners will uh, give his situation some serious thought, and I'm sure we'll get to that later on in this series. But thanks for hanging with us. I'll turn the floor over to you now, David, and uh, if you want to go ahead and bring us up to speed, and um, we'll launch into number 7. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, you know, I, I was when you were when you were talking. You, um, I was scribbling notes furiously, um, 
because you you touched on uh, four thought provoking uh, areas that I you know before we get into chapter seven I'd I'd like to just uh, uh, respond to some of the the very valid points that you just raised uh, you know the first one being about and, and these are you know the 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 crazy thing Jason is these are things that I've been thinking about the last few days and then you touched on them so <laughs> I figured this is a, a good uh, place and time to to discuss those and. You know, what the first point you brought up was about allegations of police brutality. And in the last few days, I've been thinking of this uh, couple that I think lives on the Kenai who traveled back to D.C. And uh, it was a result of uh, mistaken identity. But uh, before that was determined, uh, I guess it was some federal agents who kicked down their door and uh, busted into their home. and. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard you and a couple other people talk about that. And, and that reminds me of, you know, this, some of the stories that we hear down south, of uh, uh, people of color, uh, how their homes are broken into and how, you know, police jump to conclusions. And I was thinking that exact same thing. I mean, we're all in this together. And, you know, this, it doesn't matter if you're on the right or the left or in the middle. Uh, you know, people around the country are... Um, the 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 recipients of this uh, police brutality, and uh, this is something that we can unite on, uh, especially here in Alaska, because to get these constitutional amendments passed in the legislature this year, it, it's going to take people from both sides of the aisle, and, and I know that, for instance, uh, you know, in the Alaska Native community, uh, you know, a lot of people there are are you know very troubled by our prison statistics, where, you know, uh, 40% of, of inmates are Alaska Native, but uh, comprise about 17% of the population. So, uh, you know, this, this is something that we can unite on uh, for, um, uh, for, for a good cause, for a good purpose. Um, point number two, you know, you, you, you talked, uh, you mentioned uh, bringing us together uh, you talked about justice and equal uh, protection under the law. Uh, something that has been on my mind for the last several days, you know, that you and I have been talking is the Pledge of Allegiance. And, and you know, those words are so simple, but yet so important. Every word. I mean, one nation under God, you know. Yeah, we need to get God back in uh, in, in, in our society. Uh, a godless society does not work. And we need to have God back in there, um, you know, uh, with liberty and justice for all. I mean, this is another thing we can unite on liberty. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people on on the right side of the aisle who are feeling like their liberty has been taken away, taken away from them. And people on the left feel the same way and justice. Uh, you know, this is what what we're doing here. This series is all is all to, and at least you know, my goal is to promote justice. So, um, you know, these are things that we can unite on: uh, rich, poor, left, right. I mean, you know, everybody in the center. Um, the the third thing I wanted to touch on was you you brought up due process. And, you know, how important due process is in our, in our, uh, in our legal structure. 
I, I wanted, when you said that, I wanted to add, you know, to make sure that people are tried by a jury of their peers. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit in a prior episode about the, you know, the Alvarado case, uh, 1971 Supreme Alaska Supreme Court case, which says, you know, for uh, Alaska, you know, for those accused who are Alaska native and they come from a village and that's where the crime was alleged to have occurred, it's important that the jury resemble a cross section of that community. And something that really comes to mind is, is the cultural differences. Like, for instance, in my culture, in the white culture, we're taught to look, we are taught to look authority in the eye when we talk to them. Uh, whereas Alaska Natives, especially uh, the Clinket culture in Southeast, which I'm very familiar with, they were taught not to look white authority in the eye. And this is how Mr. Jack was taught. He was raised by his father and his grandfather not to look white authority in the eye because, you know, over the last 50, 60 years, that that was viewed as, um, you know, if you looked white authority in the eye, you got in more trouble. So they were taught to look away. And I didn't, you know, growing up uh, in, in Southeast Alaska, I didn't even realize this until I started getting into what I'm doing the last three or four years. Uh, like, for instance, I had a good friend growing up with, uh, you know, he played basketball, I played basketball. But when I talked to him, you know, he was always looking around, you know, and I kind of thought, oh, that's, you know, he's, he's, he's shifty. You know, those are shifty eyes. You know, why does he look at me? And I didn't realize that uh, until just a few years ago that, uh, you know, that's, that's how he and, and many other uh, Alaska Native men were, were raised was was not to look whites in the eye because you got in trouble if you did. So, you know, that's just an example. Um, and then the last thing that you, the point number four that you talked about was how prosecutors hide information. Uh, one of your listeners um, contacted me uh, over the last couple of days and they included a copy of the uh, the report uh, that was done uh, by Henry Schulke uh, in the Ted Stevens investigation. And I've been kind of skimming through that this morning. And it details how federal prosecutors withheld a substantial amount of evidence in uh, indicting and then getting a conviction against Senator Ted Stevens. Uh, this was back in 2007, 2008 during the VECO um, affair. And it talks about how uh, the, the report, it's 500 pages, this report. I mean, it is extensive. And uh, it talks about how uh, this Bill Allen, uh, you know, he was one of the witnesses against Ted Stevens. Well, uh, you know, the feds had him over a barrel. And uh, there were some things that he was doing that, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't need to get into the details here. But the bottom line is that uh, the, the federal judge was so offended by the evidence that the federal prosecutors withheld uh, in the Ted Stevens uh, uh, trial and, uh, you know, had this uh, investigator, this Henry Schulke, um, uh, hired, you know, who prepared a 500 page report about how the federal prosecutors 
game the system, if you will. So, yeah, Jason, those are just some, uh, some you know, things I was uh, scribbling down when you were talking. I don't know if you want to, you know, if you want to touch on any of those uh, or, or if you want to get directly into uh, Chapter 7. Well, just real quick, I just want to want to remind folks that that uh, we are very supportive of law enforcement. We're very supportive of our military. We're very supportive of our Republican form of democracy. And uh, anything that we say that is disparaging uh, about a part of the system is not a condemnation of the whole system or uh, the whole body of uh, civil servants working within the system as within any system you'll have good actors and bad actors and folks that just sit around and collect a paycheck and um who are are neither they're just sort of cogs in the in the machine and um what we're doing is we're highlighting the bad actors and the mechanism by which our forebearers are the the founding members of our of our of our country and our society um, created uh, this, uh, this mechanism to deal with those folks and, and to create uh, citizen led accountability in a thoughtful um, methodical uh, and civil way. And uh, a mechanism that brilliantly removes partisanship politics and just gets down to the marrow of the matter and so as we move forward you know my recommendation to everyone is to even though we're called the conservative hour of power and enlightenment salon that you share this with your liberal friends and say hey we may not agree on politics but this isn't about politics this is about freedom and liberty for all and that word in the Pledge of Allegiance before freedom and liberty for all is indivisible with freedom and liberty for all. So let's just look at the pledge real quick. I pledge allegiance to the flag. And I just went blank. <laughs> I got to put my hand over my heart. You can go with me on it. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the nation for which it stands. Or, and man, I haven't said it and for to, so long. And, go ahead. Well, and, 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 and to the republic. To the republic for which it stands. For which it stands. One nation. One nation under God. Under God. Indivisible. Indivisible. With liberty. With liberty. And justice. And just, for all. For all. See, that's, that, and we're conditioned, or at least we used to be, to know that without even thinking about it. And that's been removed from our classrooms. It's been removed from our football stadiums. It's been removed. You know, they're taking down the anthem. They're taking down the flag. They're taking down these, these things are the sort of the, the threads in the fabric that binds us together. And if we can, if we're an enemy of the, of the state and we want to destroy the state, we have to destroy its institutions beginning at the foundations. And that's what uh, they've been doing to us. They, the, the all-powerful they, whoever they are, have been promoting this agenda that undermines the very fabric of what unites us. And in that word indivisible, 
you know, if you think about the last three years, how divided has this nation become? You know, to mask or not to mask, to vax or not to vax. You know, what is a woman? Uh, we can go on and on. And I want to set all that stuff aside and just say, let's get back to the basics and let's say indivisible with liberty and justice for all. If I would argue that if you don't believe in the statement that we should all have liberty and all have justice, all have equal protection under the law, then you're no countryman of mine. Because the America I know and love treats all people with dignity and is not a respecter of persons, individuals, that protects one class while it demonizes another class, where one class has their front door kicked in because they go to a peaceful rally, and another class can commit crime after crime after crime with impunity, and the Department of Justice says, oh, there's nothing to see here. So that's the conversation we're having. That's why we're showcasing the grand jury, because I believe it is one of those fundamental threads in our culture, in our society, that keeps us together, binds us together, puts us all under a common roof, and re-emphasizes those common principles and shows that we do have more in common than more that divides us. And so without any further, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess, discussion on that, that that's, really, that's really where my passion is in this project, is, is to really drive home th that message and not to create greater division, but to say this is an opportunity for us all to learn something and with that expanded knowledge then come back together as a community in agreement around this singular principle that we should all have freedom and liberty and due process. Yeah, Jason, and I, I'm really glad that you brought up, you know, what, what you just, you know, talked about and including, you know, the first part there where, where you talked about, uh, you know, respecting our law enforcement and our military um, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we, we have a lot of dedicated uh, individuals uh, in our society, uh, law enforcement who help, helps keep us safe, uh, the military who helps keep keeps us safe. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's, there's just, you know, there's a few bad actors out there and, you know, they drag, um, you know, they they drag things down uh, for, for, for the good cops, for the, for the good soldiers, for the good military, for the good prosecutors, um, you know, for the good judges. So, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, those people will, will help us as well. Um, they'll help us get to the truth. They'll support our efforts. And, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when a few bad apples in, in the Kenai system are, are trying to uh, withhold the uh, the spotlight of truth. Uh, hopefully, the the good people in that system will will stand up uh, and uh, let their voice be heard. That you know, no these these people have a have a right to be heard, and uh, it's our job to to protect that right. So, um, yeah, I'm just I'm in full agreement with you on that, and 
you know, let's let's not let a few bad apples uh, taint our whole perception of of law enforcement and uh, our criminal justice system, because uh, there are a lot of people who who are are good people in that system and who are dedicated to truth and justice. Um, so yeah, so uh, segueing into chapter seven here. Uh, this is going to be our last chapter before we turn specifically to Alaska, and um, uh, it's it's a good segue because uh, this uh, this chapter has some influence on what happens in Alaska. Um, chapter seven focuses on a case opinion uh, that was written in 1952 uh, by one of the preeminent judges in America. Uh, his name was Chief Justice Arthur Vanderbilt uh, of the New Jersey Supreme Court. Uh, Judge Vanderbilt's opinion uh, consists of 33 pages tracing back the development of the grand jury because, in his opinion, it's so vital to the sound administration of justice. Uh, one of the things he wrote uh, that you'll hear in a little bit is that the grand jury has grave responsibilities regarding enlightened and informed public opinion. Uh, his opinion has so many important things to say. Uh, I recommend that listeners who, who want to go deeper into learning about the grand jury Pull up the case online and read it. Um, uh, you can get the cite, citation. It's, it's in Ray Camden. It's a it's Camden and C-A-M-D-E-N. Uh, it's Justice Vanderbilt, and it's the 1952 opinion. Uh, but it's just 33 pages uh, filled with important stuff. Um, another thing that makes this opinion uh, especially valuable for us is that uh, in the Sheffield uh, investigation, the Alaska Attorney General uh, used this case in support of the grand jury's efforts. Uh, so in other words, uh, the, you know, the Alaska Attorney General today can't come back and try to oppose anything that is in this opinion. Uh, this is important because uh, the current uh, Attorney General, Treg Taylor, uh, is is involved in the state suppression of grand jury investigations in both Kenai and Juneau uh, by having them advised by lawyers with uh, terrible conflicts of interest. So um, the uh, there, there, there's a word in the legal profession called estoppel or estopped, and uh, the fact that the Alaska Attorney General made such a big deal of this case back in uh, 1985. Uh, means that it's it's very uh, relevant today in what we're uh, in what we're trying to accomplish both in Kenai and Juneau and, and elsewhere. Um, another valuable aspect of of this uh, New Jersey opinion is that it uh, opposes the reasoning of the Alaska Supreme Court in defending unconst unconstitutional Rule uh, six point one. So this, uh, this case has a lot of relevance uh, to what we're doing in Alaska today, and it's a, it's a great segue. I mean, it was three years before the Alaska Con uh, Constitutional Convention. Um, and uh, I'll just, one last thing I'll add about this uh, chapter is uh, there's going to be lots of quotes, 
And uh, in our last episode, uh, listeners heard me say subquote for the first time. And basically what that is, is where uh, someone I'm quoting is quoting another person. I'm going to refer to that as uh, subquotes. So um, sorry for that long-winded intro to uh, Chapter 7, but I'm ready to start. Uh, Chapter 7, Justice Vanderbilt's Analysis of Presentments and his impact on the Alaska Constitution. When the Alaska Constitutional Convention first convened in the fall of 1955, one of the most recognized contemporary judicial authorities in the United States on the common law powers of grand juries was Chief Justice Arthur Vanderbilt of the New Jersey Supreme Court. Judge Vanderbilt was nationally known for his efforts in court reform and the adoption of his ideas into the revised New Jersey State Constitution in 1947. From 1937 to 1938, he was president of the American Bar Association. He served for many years as the dean of the New York University Law School and on two occasions, declined consideration for the U.S. Supreme Court. The Alaska Constitutional Convention hired as its consultant Dr. Sheldon Elliott, Dean of New York University Law School and Director of the Institute of Judicial Administration. Dr. Elliott's credentials included previous experience with the California State Constitutional Revision Committee and the Los Angeles Committee on Reorganization of City Government. When Dr. Elliott was first introduced as a legal consultant to the delegates by President Egan on December 1, 1955, he singled out Judge Vanderbilt's influence upon his work and the delegates, quote, I shall give credit where credit is due. The inspiration for the Institute's establishment and the spade work in getting the money from the Rockefeller Foundation and getting it going both came from Judge Vanderbilt, whose name I'm sure is known to many of you. Three years earlier, in 1952, in a case called In Ray Camden Grand Jury, Judge Vanderbilt had written the opinion of the six to one majority of the New Jersey Supreme Court in a case involving the presentment power of the grand jury. One of the five other judges in the majority was Justice William C. Brennan, who in 1956 would be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court where he served for 34 years. Becoming, in the words of his colleague, Justice Antonin Scalia, quote, probably the most influential justice of the 20th century, unquote. In Camden, The pertinent facts involved a local grand jury investigation following following an attempted jail break-in at the county jail. The grand jury examined 59 witnesses at 12 special sessions and took 1,500 pages of testimony. In addition to various indictments of public officials, the grand jury issued a lengthy report enumerating irregularities and conditions at the county jail and made a series of specific recommendations. The report was challenged by the sheriff, who was the subject of the grand jury's criticism. 
At the beginning of his extensive 33-page Camden opinion, Judge Vanderbilt stressed the importance of the investigative grand jury in maintaining a healthy democracy and the necessity for embarking on such a thorough analysis of its function. Quote, the matters involved in this appeal are so vital to the sound administration of justice, and some of them are so widely misapprehended that we deem it essential to present the facts in our views of the pertinent principles of law in considerable detail. We must constantly keep in mind not only that in the last analysis, every civil right that we treasure necessarily depends on the orderly administration of the criminal law, but also that the sound administration of government at every level depends in large measure on enlightened and informed public opinion, and that in this field, the grand jury not only has rights, but grave responsibilities, unquote. Judge Vanderbilt made several references to the common law power of the American grand jury following its English predecessor. His observations were consistent with those previously made by Lord Summers and several judges of the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as the later observations of Professor Younger, Wright, and Lerner. Citing to previous authority on the practice of grand juries in East Jersey in, East Jersey in 1682, Judge Vanderbilt also drew attention to the lack of rigid structure or comprehensive rules restricting the operation of grand juries. Quote, grand juries were directed to appear at the county courts, but what made them eligible or whom they should be composed, by whom they should be summoned, and what were to be their duties was not stated. The early settlers in East Jersey were mostly Englishmen and as such were thoroughly acquainted with the principles of common law as it existed in the mother country, where courts of similar name and like character were to be found. These courts in England were governed by the rules of that universal law so dear to every Englishman's heart. The English colonists had drunk deep and long droughts from the fountain of liberty. They were equally unyielding when their political freedom was endangered and watchful in guarding against any action by governor or state or legislature, which seemed at all like interference with their rights as citizens. This feeling pervaded all classes and led them to seek to discover what were the best foundations to civil liberty. So they studied the principles of common law of England and needed no statute to enable them to understand how to conduct the courts provided for them. They needed only courts properly constituted and falling back on their knowledge of the modes of procedure in similar courts in the mother country, they required nothing more. There was a remarkable fact connected with the legislation respecting these early courts. In the law constituting them, there was no provision for their guidance no rules by which they were to be governed, no mode established by which their judgments were to be enforced. There was no practice act nor anything like it. The statutes con constituting them were the simplest possible. The tribunals were created, their titles given, 
and the times and places when and where they were to meet, and that was all. Unquote. Judge Vanderbilt turned his attention to considering the common law powers of the investigatory grand jury under the auspices of the New Jersey Constitutional Convention of 1947. He cited an opinion from the New Jersey Attorney General's Office, office, which summarized the practice in that state and the inherent common law principles on which it is grounded. In pertinent part, this opinion states, quote, the right of a grand jury to make an inquiry independently of the prosecutor of the county is an inherent common law right, which is in no wise affected by this provision in the Constitution. A grand jury also has the fundamental right to inquire into any matters which are pertinent to an exercise of its powers and is universally so charged by the court when entering upon its duties, unquote. Judge Vanderbilt then noted the distinction between the common law, which prevails in Alaska, and the statutory enactments of some states when considering the grand jury's ability report, uh, to report its findings to the public. Quote, we are not unaware of a respectable body of authority in other jurisdictions that frowns on the exercise by the grand jury of its common law right to make presentments of matters of public concern unaccompanied by indictments. In some of these jurisdictions, the powers of the grand jury are governed by statute, and the problem there is solely one of statutory construction, but such is not the case here. A practice imported here from England three centuries ago as part of the common law and steadily exercised ever since under three successive state constitutions is too firmly entrenched in our jurisprudence to yield to fancied evils, to fancied evils, unquote. Consistent with the host of highly respected judges and scholars, both preceding and following him, Judge Vanderbilt stressed that increasingly complex government makes the common law investigatory and reporting powers of the grand jury even more essential than they were in previous centuries. As we saw in chapter six, his views on this critical aspect of the grand jury were echoed 50 years later by both professors Wright and Lerner. Quote, if presentments of matters of public concern were found necessary in the public interest in the relatively simple conditions of English and colonial life three centuries ago, how much more essential are they in these days when government at all levels has taken on a complexity of organization and of operation that defies the best intentions of the citizen to know and understand it? What is not known and understood is likely to be distrusted. What cannot be investigated in a republic is likely to be feared. The maintenance of popular confidence in government requires that there be some body of laymen which may investigate any instances of public wrongdoing. The grand jury provides a readily available group of representative citizens of the county empowered, as occasion may demand, to voice the conscience of the community. There are many official acts and omissions that fall short of criminal misconduct 
and yet are not in the public interest. It is very much to the public advantage that such conduct be revealed in an effective, official way. No community desires to live a hairbreadth above the criminal level, which might be the case if there was no official organ of public protest. Such presentments are a great deterrent to official wrongdoing. By exposing wrongdoing, moreover, such reports inspire public confidence in the capacity of the body politic to purge itself of untoward conditions. The dangers to a public official or a private citizen from unfounded presentments are far less than those attending the other forms of public investigations we have mentioned. By reason of the care with which grand juries are selected, the secrecy with, with which they deliberate, and the judicial control of such presentments when they are handed to the court. Of course, if grand juries are selected on a partisan basis, partisan presentments might result. The remedy, therefore, is not to abolish presentments, but to abolish partisan grand juries, unquote. Through his detailed recounting in Camden of society's benefits from the grand jury, Judge Vanderbilt highlighted the importance of, one, the common law investigatory and reporting powers of the grand jury, two, the grand jury's unique ability to generate public trust in governments of increasing complexity, three, a properly functioning investigatory grand jury's ability to proactively deter official mis misconduct and serve as a vital check and balance, and four, the critical and absolute necessity of properly selected nonpartisan grand juries. When the delegates of the Alaska Constitution convened in 1955, they had the benefit of evaluating almost 200 years of grand jury practice in the United States. At their disposal were all the arguments for and against the grand jury's investiga investigative and reporting power that this study has referenced. The delegates also had the luxury of comparing the condition of the public welfare in states that had strong grand jury powers versus those states that had weak grand jury powers. The importance and virtues of the grand jury expressed by nationally known advocates such as Thomas Dewey in 1941 and Judge Vanderbilt in 1952 were likely familiar to some, if not many, of our founders. As the following chapter will detail, the issue whether to preserve the grand jury in the Alaska Constitution became the subject of considerable debate at the convention. Those delegates in support of preserving the grand jury's broad common law powers in the Constitution and insulating it from executive, judicial, and legislative attack won overwhelmingly. The one delegate who spoke out against increasing the constitutional protection of its broad, investiga of its broad investigatory powers in civic matters lost in an extremely lopsided vote. It wasn't a close contest, and as we shall see, the eight delegates from the Juneau area were unanimously in favor of increasing the constitutional protections of the grand jury's broad powers. That's the end of Chapter 7. Well, I, I can't can't wait to get into the Alaska specific 
uh, cases. And um, the last uh, uh, half of this series, we have 14 episodes. This is episode seven. So um, what can we expect in, in chapter eight? Well, chapter eight is, is one of my favorites. Um, you know, I, I, I went to the trans, the, 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 the transcripts of the, uh, constant of the Alaska constitutional convention from 1955 to 1956 is 4,000 pages long. Uh, the delegates met for, you know, I don't know, 60, 90 days up in Fairbanks in the middle of winter. And so my chapter eight will lay the foundation for that. But what we're going to get in, there ended up being a vigorous floor debate uh, at the Constitutional Convention on on uh, the grand jury subject. And uh, in researching the book, I was able, you know, I looked up the personalities of some of the delegates uh, who spoke. Uh, it's just such a, a wealth of, of knowledge. Um, uh, you know, it. it you know, it'll show people, it'll show Alaskans that, uh, you know, the, the delegates put a lot of thought into this, um, into the Constitution, uh, into the grand jury. Uh, they were aware, uh, many delegates spoke about how prosecutors, um, you know, will, will withhold evidence, um, how, you know, the grand juries, um, you know, can, can, can be misled. And, uh, but in their mind, uh, it was worth it. You know, if, if the grand jury, you know, comes through and provides freedom for one out of a hundred, uh, as, as we'll see in chapter eight, uh, you'll Kilcher will say it's worth it no matter the cost. And this was coming from uh, delegates who, you know, before the oil money started flowing, and they were concerned that, I mean, that was the biggest, you know, that was the biggest opposition to having a grand jury was the cost. Um, you know, delegates were concerned that, uh, you know, it, 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 it wasn't worth it, uh, that, you know, the process could be gained by prosecutors. And they just there were some delegates who didn't see much value in it. But even those delegates who spoke out against it early on. Uh, through the floor, and this is the really cool thing about it, through that floor debate, uh, people who spoke out against it because of the cost uh, ended up voting for it because they recognized that the, um, that, that the grand jury was so essential to freedom. And, you know, kind of tying this back into this Chapter 7 uh, that I just read, uh, you know, for readers, I... I some of the things that Justice Vanderbilt uh, said in this opinion are so important, and it ties in so closely to to David Haig and you know and the people in Kenai that are concerned about government. For for other people who have raised concerns about OCS, Office of Children's Services of the state, um, what Judge Vanderbilt has to say goes directly to the heart of those concerns, and and. Uh, for, for, you know, listeners who, uh, I, I, this is in page 46 of my book where uh, I have, I, I cite uh, three paragraphs of, of the opinion. And when he, when Justice uh, Vanderbilt says, no community desires to live a hairbreadth above the criminal level, 
which might well be the case if there was no official organ of public interest. Uh, you know, he's talking about the, you know, the vital need for a grand jury. And then in the previous sentence where he goes, uh, he talks about how grand juries are even more essential now that governments have taken on this heightened level of complexity and how he talks about how it's so difficult for citizens to know and understand government. And when he says what is not known and understood is likely to be distrusted. Well, and, and what cannot be, go ahead. Well, and I was just going to finish the, 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 the last, the next two sentences. Cause it's just, I mean, I, I underline the whole thing in my book because it's so important to me, but he says, he continues, what cannot be investigated in a Republic is likely to be feared. Yeah. And, I mean, and, that and means, I was going to jump right on that. Because because it is it is when the citizenry fears their government that the whole thing just collapses. When when there is no trust and there is fear, and and you brought up OCS, and uh, you know I used to work for OCS. I was a licensed social worker for just over eleven years, and uh, this this uh, this idea that the system has gotten so complex that the regular Joe on the street, you know, has difficulty sort of comprehending the, the full expanse of it and what it means and how it applies to him or her. And then you enter into a situation where you have activist courts who take some of the basic ideas of evidentiary standards and, um, sort of long-held common law practices and flip them on their heads and make these, these kind of activist decisions that um, really are not constitutional at all. And then that becomes the new norm. It's really easy to see where the citizens lose faith and trust in their government and don't believe that the law is there to serve them. And, and then we see the unrest that unfolded across the nation over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, working with OCS, I, I myself can recall one case where I left OCS and I went to work for a native tribe as their, uh, family services director. And I found myself on the opposite side of the courtroom from OCS in a particular case. And we had to fight two years in court to prove something that could have been, um, decided in five minutes if they had reviewed their own policies and followed federal and state laws and, and regulations. But uh, an activist uh, activist member of, of the, uh, I guess, the pro- prosecution side, in this case it's the attorney general and not the, the uh, district attorney, but the attorney general's office, in representing their client, the state, tried to present a case that put the state in a favorable light, even though they were violating all their own policies and, and, and uh, uh, regulations and statute. And ultimately, when the final disposition or decision came from the judge in the case, we won the case. And the judge said at that point, Never had she seen such a egregious abuse of power and a miscarriage wow. of justice. And, and we won the case, 
but nothing happened to any of the guilty parties on the state side that had miscarried justice and abused their power. Nothing. There was there was no accountability. And having worked for OCS and then serving on the state's licensing board for two terms, the final term of which I was the president, and getting a lot of education in the process about the purpose of the board, the board was there to protect the people, not the profession. So a lot of people think that, you know, like like the uh, the medical board at the state level, or or in this case, the social work board is there to, you know, promote and support and protect the licensees. When in actuality, they're there to actually put people who are practicing that profession under a license so that they have a means by which to sanction them if they engage in malpractice or unethical behavior or criminal behavior so that they can bar them, restrict them from practicing in the state or any other affiliated state. And our state is part of a broad association of 48 states. But the state exempted itself from the licensing standards it holds a private citizen to. So if you want to go out and become a social worker and hang a shingle somewhere, you better follow the licensing uh, guidance and statute. Because if you don't, and you call yourself a social worker and conduct practice of that profession you can be found guilty of a misdemeanor and fined. And I, I can't recall if there's imprisonment as well, but um, I think it depends on the situation. But yeah, the state, Jason, did the you state find, exempts, exempts themselves from that. Yeah, I was just curious, Jason, if you found that that OCS board actually, you know, did protect the people or, or did it, or was it protecting more of the state's interests? Well, it, it, to be clear, it wasn't the OCS board. It was the social work board. And so okay. OCS is just a government agency that employs social workers. Uh, there are lots of social workers out there, Catholic social services, Baptist social services, basically anybody that works with children and families um, around social issues you know, may have uh, a reason to employ a social worker or a human services uh, you know, a graduate. But um, I found that most of the professionals in that board had an elitist mentality that the profession could do no wrong. If you carried that credential, it was very hard to get them to make a decision against somebody who had a credential. And for me, I came into that um, role sort of by a strange pathway. I, I studied political science, philosophy, and economics, and that's what I got my bachelor's of science in. And when I moved back to the state, there were very few jobs available for my generation. And I found myself uh, having to look in places I didn't originally intend, and I ended up at OCS. And once I got there, they they uh, incorporated, they, they passed a law called the Title and Protection Act, or the Title and uh, Practice Act, rather, which defined practice for social work and then uh, protected the title so that no person could practice social work and use the title social worker in conjunction with their practice. So even if they didn't call themselves social worker, if by the nature of what they were doing in their job 
looked like and lined up with the practice uh, definition for social work, you could still be, you know, uh, held to account for that. And so I, you know, I went ahead and sat for a license and I got, I passed the exam and, and I carried that forward. But I came in at the baccalaureate level, the bachelor's level. And they had three levels of licensure, bachelor's, master's, and clinical. Clinical is like a therapist. And you have to do a whole bunch of hours. And, you know, you have a, a master's or, uh, or PhD. And, um, and it was those folks that, generally speaking, were very reluctant to push back against the state and to take a serious look at, at how the state was not complying with the laws that the legislature had passed. And remember, the legislature is supposed to be representative of the people, and the people are the government. So if the people say that practice will be conducted a certain way in a certain manner under this title, and you must carry a license, and then the, the bureaucracy exempts itself from the people's law, then it holds itself above that law. And at that point, it's a runaway government, and it is uh, exerting illegitimate rule over the people. And that's when we get back to the original statement that when the people fear their government, right, the government loses its legitimacy because in a government that's of, by, and for the people, if the people actually fear the government, then they've lost control of the government. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's what I see on, on my end is, uh, you know, it, it seems like in Alaska, we have a lot of boards and commissions and, you know, people are appointed, you know, for four or six, you know, 10, 12 year terms. I think this, uh, one of the things that David Haig has been talking about is the, uh, uh, the commission on judicial conduct. You know, he's been talking about this one individual there, Marley Greenstein, but, I was taking a look at that the other day and it looks to me like there might be people that have served on that board for, you know, citizens who have served on that board for, you know, 12, 15 years. And, you know, going back to chapter one, uh, Lord Summers, you know, Lord Chancellor of England, uh, Lord Summers warned us about this in his treatise back in the 1600s. He, he said, look, you know, when, when you set up these, um, these boards of people, uh, you know, when they're not temporary in nature, people get used to this position of power. And, you know, some people can go into it with the best of intentions, but what, you know, once they get in there and, and, uh, you know, I, I call it, uh, brown nosing, you know, if you've been in a situation or a position where people, you know, brown nose you for years and years, you start thinking, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm better than these other people. And uh, walk on water, you know, and, and uh, like you called it, you know, there was a, a, an elitist mentality. And, and this, is, this is what Lord Summers was saying is, is the power of the grand jury. It's designed specifically to be temporary in nature so that people don't get full of themselves. And they don't start, you know, making, uh, making bad decisions. Uh, and showing favoritism. And so this is why I, I think in Alaska, we need, you know, one thing I want to see is getting back to where grand juries take an active role uh, in, in guiding the administration of our government. 
uh, instead of, uh, you know, I, I think if all these boards and commissions know that uh, their, their work is going to be overlooked, not by the state, but by the people, we might start seeing, uh, you know, different, different outcomes, you, you know, with your, with your board, Jason, there, the social worker board, you, you might find that, uh, or we might, you know, uh, see where that board starts becoming more responsive to the people and, and not just, uh, kowtowing to the, to the state, which is what I think happens in a, you know, certainly we look at the judicial council who selects our judges. Um, you know, they, they, you know, people sit on that board for six years and, and that board is, is, uh, you know, at least through the Alaska Bar Association is, is selected. I mean, you, you see the same kind of people in there, you know, year after year and well, you, they you, do get this. You know, you've heard of the, the military industrial complex, right? Sure. This, this vast machine that's going to consume us all. Well, you know, that, that is a real thing. Uh, but but we can look in a in a smaller uh, circle at our own state, and we can look at the behavioral health system, and we can look at this board I served on, and we can immediately identify some issues. So so if a person were to come under the investigation of the administrative board, the licensing board, and they were employed by a large system, let's say Providence Health Systems, that's the largest uh, private employer uh, in the state. And they hire, they have a lot of people under their, under their employee. They've, they've got counselors and behavioral uh, specialists and therapists and social workers and, you know, and the list goes on and on. And those folks are performing a duty under direction of supervision in most cases, because one of the things they do is nobody in social work, you're not supposed to make a, a decision. A single person is not supposed to make a decision. They're supposed to employ something called a, uh, a, a team decision making model where you have uh, a number of people all weighing in on a decision that needs to be made in a case, basically in a family's life. But the problem is, is that while that may seem a noble thing, that may seem like something that would uh, protect the individual. And in many cases it does, you know, from, from uh, maybe an arbitrary or capricious decision made by a, a single person. What it also does is it diffuses responsibility so that there is no one person or one agency that is guilty of malpractice or responsible for uh, an ethical issue with the, with the with the family because because they insulate themselves with this term saying well it was a, a, a team decision and and a team can't be wrong because we have a lot of uh, very highly qualified highly educated uh, folks who are smarter than everybody else and and uh, you know they came to a consensus that this was the right move at the right time for the right reason and and in doing so they they kind of they create a system that that makes it to where there, there's a moving, it, you know, culpability is a moving target. Who's responsible when bad stuff happens? You know, and, and I, I can remember a case, my own case, in, in, uh, when I was working in OCS where I had a, a child who had been out of state in a treatment center for, you know, like three years, had finally stabilized, had some severe emotional and behavioral problems and some childhood trauma, 
and and it was a, a native child, and we got the child back into state, into a therapeutic foster home that had um, uh, adoption as their permanency plan, meaning that once the home study was done and the child was stabilized in the home, that the foster parent was going to actually adopt this teenage kiddo. And at some point, one of the tribes got, uh, well, the child's tribe said uh, there are relatives in the tribe that want her to come back for a specific uh, festival. And I argued that that would be a destabilizing thing because it would put her back in the community where she was traumatized. And through this team decision-making model, you know, four or five people at higher pay grades than me decided, well, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to... Her having access to this cultural event is more important than anything the, the line worker may say. And so ultimately, the child went back to the village. Some bad stuff happened. And the child ended up hospitalized in Anchorage and ran away from hospitalization and ended up being found dead from a heroin overdose. Wow. And whose fault was that? Now, the child definitely had some issues. But did the state do everything in its power to fulfill its responsibility? Did the state do everything it was supposed to do to protect for that child? Because, because the premise is when the state takes a child, that they're going to do a better job than the parent could do. Or than the tribe could do. Or than, you know, other people in their support network could do. But the state failed. And who's responsible for that? Yeah, you know, that's that's such a tragic story. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of this in the context of, of grand juries because, you know, you, you talk about the team decision-making model. Well, certainly a grand jury uh, is, is included in that because in, in Alaska you have 15 individuals that meet and they decide, um, you know, what they're going to do. And, and it's uh, collectively by, by a vote. Uh, you know, the majority, uh, you know, if, if there's an indictment, the majority of the grand juries, uh, you know, voted that way. It wasn't unanimous. But those people but are, think- are teachers and grocers and uh, lawn care guys and uh, oil field workers and gas station and, and, attendants and stay at home, and stay at and home, stay at home moms, moms, you know, and, and yep. they are not this this titled class of people who are yeah. given vast authority over the lives of people on a continuous basis. They're, they're there only for that brief moment in time. And so their paycheck isn't attached to the decisions they're making. And that, that was kind of the point I was making with the, uh, my brain kind of finally circled back to the original point is that with the board I was on, the, the reason why I think there was a reluctance from the folks uh, with the higher degrees than me to do anything about OCS was because their bread and butter came from OCS. OCS is the largest social services oriented program in the state with the largest number of clients, with the largest uh, um, connection to Medicaid funding. And most of these service providers that are in the private sector nonprofits, namely, receive a majority of their funding through government grants 
and the Medicaid system through billing. And so if you go after somebody in one of these vast systems like Providence, you're cutting your own throat if you're in private practice as a, as a clinical uh, therapist because those are the folks who are referring clients to you. So how can you serve on a board, which is a volunteer position, and make these really um, important decisions about things that make an agency look bad and hope that that agency doesn't retaliate in kind by not sending you work? Yeah, Jason, you just, uh, you know, yeah, I couple, two or three things I'm thinking of here because, um, uh, you know, I, I was going to continue by saying, um, you know, in a grand jury, there's no rank, you know, so, so not only are they on a temporary uh, serving position, you know, they're, they, they're, they're not there long term, but there's, there's no rank within that organization. It's not like a corporate board where you have the CEO and, you know, the CFO, and then you have, you know, other, uh, you know, lesser, you know, lesser titled people. Uh, everybody is, is on par with each other. And, and you kind of alluded to that when, when you talked about, uh, you know, the, 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 the equality uh, of the various uh, stations in life of those serving on the grand jury. The other thing that, as you were talking, you know, I was drawing parallels to, uh, you know, these boards and commissions and decision makers that have ties into the state government, you know, like you talk about Providence, I believe, who's beholden in a way to OCS. Um, I see the same thing on the legal end, like, for instance, Thomas Jack. Um, he filed his, you know, he, he was convicted. His second trial was was a completely lopsided uh, it was a perver- it was a perversion of justice is what the the rules of professional conduct uh, call it because he was given a new state appointed attorney who was not given any time to prepare for the trial and the attorney had no idea what was going on there was things that he, he was completely unprepared for um, and I think of you know so so Thomas has in the legal community what's called uh, a post conviction relief motion and that's where you bring up if, if you've been provided inadequate or incompetent counsel, you don't bring it up at the appeal level. You bring it up in something called the post-conviction relief motion. And Thomas has a slam dunk case for post-conviction relief. In fact, the judge and the prosecutor admitted as much on in, in the transcripts that I have. And they figured that the case would be, they figured that Thomas Jack's trial or his conviction would be retried in six years. Well, it's 13 years. Thomas Jack filed his motion, uh, post-conviction relief motion, seven years ago. And it has not even been briefed because the state appoints these attorneys and, you know, he's on like, I think his third attorney and they haven't done anything. Because they know where their bread is buttered. So, I mean, is, 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 are his attorneys that are appointed by the state, are they really gonna, you know, dig into his case and, and say the things that need to be said? No, because they're beholden to the state for more cases. Um, and the, and the same thing, um, same thing happens with attorneys. You know, attorneys are self-regulating. 
I know, of, and I've mentioned this in a prior podcast, where I know of attorneys in Juneau, these are good people, but they're afraid to speak up. They don't want to take on the state. They don't want to take on the, the Alaska Bar Association because they know they'll get blacklisted. They know that they'll get rulings against their clients. So this is a what you've just identified with OCS is, in my opinion, is probably pervasive, you know, throughout Alaska. I see it in the legal system on, on, in, in, in two different aspects. Well, so, in, in case in point with David Haig's case, you know, uh, he secured private counsel, right? He, David Haig was a successful businessman, a master guide with a lodge and uh, a deep client list, um, was very successful at what he did. Uh, he, he was a man of means. So he didn't have, uh, I assume, the, the ability to secure uh, public counsel, and why would you if you have the money to, to get a private attorney? So he tells a story of how his private attorney, after one of the early rulings in his case, which was against him, um, he brought him in under, I think it was a deposition, and uh, through that process, <laughs> learned that the attorney had been bullied by the state by the prosecutors and basically put in a position that you know if you make these arguments in this way to defend your client here's what you can expect will happen to you and so he soft-shoed and and he apologized to david you know after the fact and said i i was between a rock and a, a, a hard place essentially my words not his but essentially that was that was what what david you know summarized and so when we talk about the coercive power of the bureaucracy and its full weight exerted upon a private citizen you know um I, this is this is banana republic kind of corruption and well um, and it's you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I wasn't aware of that story about David Haig and, you know, but it's, but it's so true. I mean, it, 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 it fits to a T what I've seen in, in Juneau where, um, I've got, you know, private, you know, well-respected private attorneys, um, supporting me, but, but, you know, behind my back, not, you know, they're not out there, uh, in front of me, um, you know, they, they just know that to, uh, you know, to, you, you got to go with the flow. If you try, you know, Julie Willoughby, uh, you know, she, they, they made an example of her. She's, you know, she was the top rated criminal defense attorney in, in Juneau. And she had the audacity to, you know, call out the, uh, the, the Juno prosecutor there for being, uh, you know, engaging in unconstitutional and unethical behavior. And they made an example out of her. Um, and, 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 you know, she was, uh, uh, she should be a judge today, but they, they wrecked her pro- professional career. And all, all attorneys, you know, David Haig's attorney understood this. And this is why in my uh, requested grand jury, I requested a special independent prosecutor from outside of Alaska. And this is why I think the, the grand jury investigation in Kenai, they need an attorney who is not a member of the Alaska Bar Association, who doesn't have these ties, who, who, 
who can't be threatened or intimidated. Uh, and this is the reality that we're in right now. This is this is the issue that both David and I, David Haig and I are fighting. And uh, you know, and and I urge uh, all listeners to uh, use whatever influence they have with the uh, with the governor uh, to to request. Uh, a special prosecutor from outside the state of Alaska uh, to dig into, you know, David Haig's case. Uh, I know that there's some uh, there's a movement afoot for an investigation of the OCS. Um, you know, my my investigation includes, you know, uh, asks uh, that the OCS be looked at as well. And these all of these investigations need outside counsel uh, from from outside of Alaska. Uh, to be independent and and to get us where we need to be. And there's precedent for it in the Sheffield case when the Juno Grand Jury uh, was able to retain uh, Watergate prosecutor George Frampton. And so there's precedent, there's strong precedent for this. And I urge all listeners to to really, uh, you know, bind together and and uh, make their voices heard on this issue. It's It's critical. It's important. So, uh, in conclusion, we're about an hour and 20 minutes into uh, this episode. Uh, it's, we've had more discussion than previous episodes, but I want to take the opportunity as we close here to encourage you, while you're thinking about it, make a call. You have representatives in Juneau. You have a senator and you have a House of Representatives representative. Call them. Call the Attorney General's office call the governor's office and demand that they restore the Alaska grand jury and that they allow the grand jury to secure independent counsel from outside of the system. Independent counsel that is not going to be unduly uh, influenced by pressure from the system. You've been listening to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club conservative hour of power and enlightenment salon we welcome you to join us again and thank you for continuing to muscle through this 14-part series with david thank you david all right thanks jason